Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Comedy legend Gene Wilder recently died of complications from Alzheimer's disease, which the actor was diagnosed with three years ago. In a statement after his death, his family said he'd chosen not to go public with his diagnosis because he didn't want children to equate his character, Willy Wonka, with a terrifying disease. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world, said a family member. Keeping quiet about his disease was Wilder's decision to make, and no one else's. But the reality is, every day, somewhere in the world, there's at least one less smile on a child, or maybe a scared or confused look. Because just like adults, children too live with people who have Alzheimer's disease. So how do you talk to kids about Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia? We're going to explore that today with our guest, children's book author and illustrator, Katherine Harrison. Katherine lives in Canada, where more than 500,000 people have Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. That number will more than double in 25 years. Katherine's picture book, Weeds in Nana's Garden, is a children's story of love that helps explain Alzheimer's disease and dementia. She joins us from Ontario, Canada, where she lives with her husband and two children. Katherine Harrison, I am so excited to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you, and I am excited to talk to you today. Great. Before we get into your book, let's talk a little bit about your background. Did you grow up in Toronto? We lived in a northern Ontario town until I was 12, called uh, Deep River. It's a tiny little town north of Ottawa. So I grew up with lots of space and trees and snow (laughs) and lakes and rivers and stuff like that. I was the kind of kid that got to run through the woods and jump in the lake whenever I wanted kind of thing. Nice. And then when we, when I was a teenager, we moved to Toronto, which was perfect timing to be a teenager. Yeah. And all of, a, yeah, all of a sudden, be access to the city and the sites and the concerts and the art galleries and stuff like that. So I was pretty lucky to have both sides of the experience in my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I actually, coincidentally moved out of Toronto and I'm in kind of a small town uh, outside of Toronto in really as a result of my mom's dementia experience because my parents lived in Port Hope which is outside of Toronto Mm -hmm. and at the time I was right in Toronto Central I was commuting to Port Hope a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, in so doing discovered that I loved that whole area of uh, Ontario and also liked the more spacious and beautiful kind of environment that exists there. So after my month's passing, my husband and I started thinking maybe we wanted to move into uh, a small town experience as well. Okay. And do you have siblings? I do. I have a twin sister, actually, who lives in Los Angeles. And I have an older brother who is a world traveler, and he currently is in Dubai. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about your mom's diagnosis. I think I read as she was diagnosed in 2005. Tell us about that whole process of her being diagnosed. Were you concerned beforehand? Were there any signs? Sort of take us through that experience of, of her diagnosis and thereafter. Yes, yeah, so it was 2005 that we had the official diagnosis. And mm-hmm. as is, I think, common with many families that are in this journey, it took a long time to get that official diagnosis. By the time we had it, we already were pretty sure she had some kind of dementia. Uh, She was young, so she was only 62. So we were hopeful that it was something else because she was only 62, but we knew that there was something going on. My sister and I kind of joked that they moved to small town, the small town of Port Hope in 1996. So we were finding that my mom was quieter and quieter and quieter, and we were we would always joke, I guess the small town is making uh-huh. mom more, you know, quieter. Right. But now in retrospect, I realized it was actually the beginning of the disease, that her ability to communicate was slowly going down. Uh-huh. Is your dad still living? Yes, he's he still living, and okay. he's still in Port Hope. Okay. So what were some of your mom's first symptoms, and how did she change along the way? So her first symptoms were what I was talking about, that she was not participating in conversations Mm -hmm. as much. She was Mm -hmm. taking a back seat to what was going on. And that was, you know, a big personality change. She actually, because we ended up finding out for sure after her death in 2010, we had an autopsy done. Hmm. And we, we was told that it was frontal temporal dementia or PICS disease. She also actually was eating a lot. Uh, at the beginning, like was uh, always insatiably hungry, which was, as I looked into it further, was something that sometimes happens with frontal temporal dementias. And she also just was doing things like wearing the same outfit over and over again and sort of dismiss it. Oh, it doesn't matter. I can wear whatever. I had a young daughter and she would buy kind of inappropriate things for her, like porcelain dolls that were sort of suitable for a collector for like a one-year-old and stuff like that. And I was always like, well, she's little. Or she'd buy a huge dress-up dress that was like a size 10 and she was a baby. So those were some of the little things that we would encounter. And the language actually reduced relatively quickly compared to more of a typical Alzheimer's disease progression. And actually the whole disease itself ran quite quickly because she was diagnosed in 2005 and she died in 2010. Yeah, that is fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had my son in 2005. So so I was kind of put him and her beside each other in terms Mm. of what was happening. How did your dad handle all this? Well, at the beginning, he was being very stoic, as I think is really mm-hmm. common. Mm-hmm. And we did something that I think is really common, too, which is he was saying, every, I can handle it, I can handle it, I can handle it. And he actually ended up having a mild stroke, oh, wow. <laughs> unfortunately, which was like a bigger wake-up call that things were harder and more challenging than everyone was willing to admit at the time. And then all of a sudden that was like, okay, you know, you really need more help. And because I wasn't 
in the town that they were in. I could only be there several days a week, but not all the time. Mm -hmm. So we ended up hiring a part-time caregiver to help my dad help with my mom. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we reached out to the Victoria Order of Nurses, and we reached out to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. That was like our big, like, oh my goodness, we need to do more than what we're doing to help dad. Mm-hmm. How old was your daughter at the point that your mom was diagnosed? Because you have two she kids. She would have been two and a half. She was yes, two and a half, I have two right? children. Okay. Yeah. And so how far away were your parents living in terms of your driving? About an hour and a half. Oh, that's a long ways. So you saw them a few days a week. Exactly. And were you working in addition to being a mom? I mean, that's not to say that that's not a job, but <laughs> were you working? <laughs> I was actually, no, I had my son just when my mom was diagnosed, so I was on maternity leave, and then I actually decided to go back to art school from the process and was pursuing a degree in fine art. Uh Uh-huh. Well, tell us about some of the challenges that you faced with your mom, besides the distance, your personal challenges, your maybe emotional challenges with it, and how did you make it work? Sure. I guess one of the challenges was keeping on top of what she needed because I was away. But in terms of actually when we were there, yeah, it was responding to what she needed as well as my young children's needs Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to not have them feel uncomfortable with her. From an emotional side, it was kind of hard that I didn't have a mother to share being a grandmother and mm, to yeah. have the support. I had a lot of friends that have kids that had grandmothers that were really helpful and really part of uh, helping with the kids. Sure. And I had a bit of a reverse situation where my kids were actually helping her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I say that having the kids was helpful because she would react well to the things that they were doing. So if we would be out in their garden, they had a big, beautiful backyard in the garden, and that was nice that we had that place to go to, which is why a lot of the book is about the garden, is the garden was a place that we would go with her. They would blow bubbles, like it's something a little kid's love doing, right? Mm -hmm. They love, and then all of a sudden I'd see my mom, and she would be like, even though she was, this was even early on, she would be way more into these bubbles than a regular <laughs> adult would be into. So she would be all excited and chasing them too. And I was like, okay, this is working. This is working. Those types of things, the coloring books that my my mom would do because my daughter would be sitting and coloring. And mom, that was like a completely coincidental. I know right now, like these days, there's coloring is like a huge thing uh-huh. and lots of adults color. But back then, like it was not something that was part of the thought process. Uh-huh. And it was just stumbled upon because my daughter was sitting and coloring and then my mom's like starts doing it too. And then we realized that she's been sitting still and calm for two hours and looking yeah. at what she's doing. Hmm. And we're like, Oh my hmm. gosh, this is so great. Huh. So yeah, I mean, I think I, my biggest challenge was not having a mother to mother my children. I had the opposite. I had children that were mothering my mother. <laughs> yeah. And so how did your kids react to your mom's disease uh, when they were very young versus as they got older and as her disease progressed? I think because that was all they ever knew, we um, yeah. they, they were okay with that. 
obviously sometimes she was stressful for them. Um, she would get really upset by my son. I remember my son was not loud and she would get really upset and you know, make that kid shut up yeah. you know, sort of thing. When uh-huh. She would say something like really inappropriate from an adult. And But we talked a lot about that she had this illness and that it wasn't her. And so there was an opportunity from that experience for them to just discuss it and feel like it's okay, even though it was scary at the time. So Mm -hmm. my kids didn't have a grandmother uh, the way other kids had grandparents. And there was definitely times where they would say, so-and-so's grandma, they make cookies together and Mm -hmm. we don't do that. And I'd say, yeah, we we don't do that, but we do this. Mm -hmm. So they definitely we're aware that their relationship was different. Mm -hmm. Um, We just tried to find ways of making it special because it it was still special, even though it was different. Now that my kids are older and they look back, they, they still talk about how they, you know, feel that they had a, a loss from not having a grandmother the way other kids have a grandmother, but they recognize that they have something that they will cherish. Mm-hmm. How old are you your know, kids now? Uh, 13 and 11. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there was difficulty in having a grandparent with the disease. And it was different for my children to be going to a nursing home instead of going to, you know, grandma's for supper. But I'm glad that they were part of that, even mm-hmm. though they sometimes saw adults being upset and were kind of right there feeling emotions and anxiety when that was happening. But I'm glad that they had that experience, even though it was difficult, because I think it kind of changed their hearts, made mm-hmm. them see things differently. Mm-hmm. So when did the tough questions start with your kids? And if you have an example of a question that you got from your son or your daughter and how you answered it. A lot about the behavior, like, Mm -hmm. Mommy, why is Nana taking off her clothes when we sort the laundry? Why does she get so mad? There's a lot of that. Why does Mm -hmm. she get so mad? Mm -hmm. And we just talked a lot about your emotions and her emotions and that she doesn't control them. And, you know, it's interesting because they could relate to that because they understand and see other children and know themselves have these outbursts and stuff. Right. So it's sort of like, okay, kids have outbursts. So it's just you don't see it in an adult because they've learned to not do that anymore. But that's what's happening because of her disease is she's unlearning that and not acting the way other adults act. So that kind of question. And as she progressed, questions like, why doesn't she know my name? And a lot of repetitive, like, remember, it's because of the disease. She doesn't remember your name. She doesn't remember my name. They seem to have a lot of compassion about it. I I have this perfect example is when we were doing Christmas tree decorating in our family. Christmas is a big thing. And when we Christmas tree decorate with Nana when she wasn't well, she's like throwing the ornaments on the tree in Mm -hmm. crazy moment of spontaneity. And my kids like look at me and look at her and go, oh, this is great. (laughs) Let's do it too. Let's uh, turn what could be a really depressing moment into something fun and festive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm here thinking, my, you know, my mother was like a Martha Stewart wannabe, and this is a horrid for change for me. Ah, my mom is like doing this crazy decorating. And then my kids turn around and 
show me that this is actually kind of cool. Uh-huh. So let's just do it. Uh-huh. So there's your kids helping you too. That's kind of sweet. Yeah, I guess that's true. Because they weren't um, thinking about what it should be like or mm-hmm. what it used to be like. Mm-hmm. They weren't talk- thinking about what was and now it's changed. They're just thinking about what is happening right now. Right. And for me, that was why... That was really why I wanted to do something to bring more kids into the mix. Another thing that we did was my son had a touch and feel book and my mom would always like them and would spend a lot of time on them. And so I decided, because I was in art school at the time, I would create her own touch and feel book because I felt like I wanted something for her that it doesn't have to be like a baby book. So I created things for her that had poetry and songs that she liked, and then it had like a textural component to it. So Mm -hmm. if it was like the owl and the pussycat, one of her favorite poems, Uh she could have it read, and then there was like feathers and fur for her to touch. What a great idea. Well, your kids yeah, also didn't. Funny. Yeah, your kids also didn't see your mom growing up the way you did. So that was it. Must have been hard for you. Yeah, I mean, your life obviously changed a lot as a result of your mom's illness. How do you think that it changed you? I think just a new appreciation for seizing the moment and not having to control everything. Just letting it go and trying to be focused on what is happening is not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So it changed me that way. It changed me that that was partly why I went back to art school was because I was feeling like seeing my mom so young, her life was cut short from my point of view. And I didn't want my life to be cut short without me pursuing dreams. So Mm -hmm. and my mom would feel very strongly that way about it. And if she can be part of that, so that lesson, and it was a lesson for my family as well, because my husband was in, in corporate finance, and mm-hmm. he was very close to my mom. They both loved to cook gourmet cooking, and my mom and my husband were a killer team in the kitchen, and so <laughs> him losing her was big too. So it changed yeah. both of us. It changed our perspective, and like I said earlier, that's why we decided to leave the, the big city and go out. Mm-hmm. It sounds kind of romantic, but it was more just real life. Like um, It was just so raw and dirty that life can be taken from you, so let's yeah. make sure we're doing what we want. Right. Your mom died young. She was... 67? Yeah. And I read that she moved to a nursing home when your daughter was six. Your daughter, her name is Tristan? Yes. Yeah. Tristan, yeah. Tristan and yeah. Rory, great names. How did Tristan respond? She was six, so she probably was very aware of her, her nana leaving. Yeah, and I mean, actually, you asked me biggest challenge. I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges for me was sort of admitting that the best place for her would be to go into a nursing home. Mm-hmm. It was a long... A long time coming in terms of my acceptance of it and uh, my dad and I trying to figure out if we could do it without going into a nursing home. Mm -hmm. In terms of my kids, they felt uncomfortable at first, Mm -hmm. but it was an adventure and we had some amazing caregivers on the team that were at that nursing home that really embraced my kids. They loved having the kids there and so my kids felt welcome pretty soon quickly. There's certain PSWs that would 
let my son play around with the mechanical bed. <laughs> you uh-huh. know. Is that personal social worker? What does PSW stand for? Yes, sorry. Okay. Uh, that's, that's a term okay. that in Canada we use for, there's nursing staff and then, yeah, personal support workers that okay. are at the nurse, mm-hmm. nursing home. Mm-hmm. So, and then all of a sudden it became an adventure for them to go to the nursing home and there was interesting people there and cool things and you know what is it? there's stuff going on sometimes mm-hmm. there's a bingo game and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so it quickly became an interesting place that they never knew what was going to happen so they were happy to go as they got more comfortable with it and knew their way around and I think I owe a lot to the people that worked there that like I said embraced the kids and didn't make them feel unwelcomed and allowed us to run around in the halls and mm-hmm. stuff to not to the point of <laughs> craziness, but just enough to make the kids feel like they were allowed there. Mm-hmm. Did you visit a number of nursing homes before choosing this one? We visited three or four, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, such a process in and of itself, isn't it? Deciding on where. where. Yeah, it's funny because yeah. it was not really the facilities that were the winning thing for mm-hmm. it. It was more mm-hmm. just how you felt when you were there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your book, Weeds in Nana's Garden. What a wonderful, beautifully illustrated book this is. And I found it so touching. I mean, it was practically <laughs> crying at the end. You're a great artist, too. Well, and you come from a science background. So you've explained why you decided to go in the direction of art. Explain your art background. And you work in a lot of different mediums, too. But let's talk about your art background. And is the book based on your own experience of your mom's illness, or is it a combination of characters? Yeah, you're accurate. It's more of a combination of characters with our own experience. Our experience was a bit of a faster experience through the disease Mm -hmm. of dementia than many people. So I felt like I wanted the book to speak to as many people as I possibly could. So as a result, the journey is a bit slower and and progresses over years where you see the little girl going from a little girl to almost a teenager at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. So it mimicked a combination of what we had happen as well as what many other people do so that I could be, like I said, more relevant for more people. And in terms of my art background, like I said, I actually pursued science for a long time. Never did I know that my science degree and my art would go together like it does in this book. And because I actually studied neuropsychology, and I remember, you know, Asper saying one day, well, how am I ever going to use this neurology stuff? (laughs) Surprise. never did I know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But... uh, I think it's not that it's that much a part of the book, that it's just more while my mom was going through the disease, it probably helped me explain it to my children because I did understand what was going on um, from a cellular level of Mm -hmm. science. And it was actually from my conversations that my children, my daughter in particular, made the connection because my mother did have a big, beautiful garden and it was starting to look overgrown and changing as my mother was changing because the last thing any of us had time to do is worry about what was going on in the garden. And it was my daughter that, you know, went after we were through the garden and it was obviously more wild than before that we talked about the disease and she said, you know, mom, it's like the weeds in the garden. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, 
The disease is like the weeds hiding the flowers. The disease is hiding Nana in her brain. And, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty right on. Yeah. So then it was just a matter of time before the idea of the book kind of grew and the book became something I worked on. But it started with an explanation that we used all the time through the disease. Mm-hmm. And in terms of my art background, I was in the advertising field and I was in the more strategic marketing side of the mm-hmm. business, but I was always involved in the creative process. Uh, and once I had the opportunity, when I had my children to take a break from my career, I decided, you know what, I want to go back and tackle that art that I left behind when I went into sciences years and years ago. I want to go and see whether it's something I want to pursue. So I did a term at Toronto School of Art, the college here in Toronto, and <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I'm home. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, so... It was from there that I actually decided to, to pursue a diploma. I didn't know when I was first went that I was going to do that. Then it just coincided with my mom's disease. And so I actually had a lot of artwork through my degree that I was using covering the concept and topic of dementia. So I've done a lot of fine art paintings about dementia mm-hmm. before I did the book. And I, I think there's loads more that still could be done, but it was a way of expressing myself and what was going on by doing paintings about portraying what was happening with the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do use digital art, so I, I combine like photography and collage with um, different kinds of mediums and paintings. Mm-hmm. And I was finding that process, again, like the weeds in the garden, the process that you can take an image and kind of degrade it and change it is is a way of picturing the disease and helping you as internally understand what's happening in a visual manner. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, the fine art was an opportunity for me to express myself. And I think it was healing and helpful for me to do paintings that showed my mom's decline. And also one of the big focuses of those paintings were how my children were growing as my mom was declining. And in the face of them being part of the caregiving team, the one thing that was making my heart feel better was that my children were becoming more compassionate and empathetic because they were involved <clears throat> in my mom's disease, mm-hmm. something that they, I could never give them any other way. Yeah. And I think, you know, as much as it was so painful for all of us to have this happen, they were enriched from the experience of being at the nursing home and seeing other individuals that are also, you know, in various stages of decline in this disease. And I think that's really admirable because the reality is you made that choice. You could have hidden it from them. You could have kind Mm -hmm. of kept them away from it. And you made a really courageous choice, which, you know, it's (laughs) real life. Well, I have to say, like, you (laughs) open with Gene Wilder, and I I, I haven't been able to decide how I feel about what he said. Yeah, me neither. I'm not really sure how to think about that. I'm not sure. Like, I mean, I love everything he did and the beautiful, poignant statement about how he doesn't want to not make a child smile like yeah I, I get that and but also the, i guess you, you can't hide it you right. can't hide this right i mean you can try I'm, but kids are so perceptive you know <laughs> i just know for me personally i think that i was a better caregiver because my children were involved in the caregiving process uh-huh that's i know cool. i was 
Interesting. <laughs> well, at the back of the book, you've got some answers to questions that kids might have about Alzheimer's. Have you had some of these questions asked by your own kids? And why don't you pick one of these? Okay, sure. So let me just start by saying uh, that while I was creating the book, I actually had the opportunity to meet with nine-year-old kids, the classrooms of my daughter and of my friend's school. Mm -hmm. And I met with the children early on while I was creating the book. We talked about the story. We talked about in the book, there's fairies that are part of the bond between the granddaughter and the grandmother. We talked about whether they liked them, whether they made sense, whether they fit. And then after I got all kinds of amazing, wonderful, honest feedback, I had questions from them. And these were the questions they were asking me. And they were so honest and direct. I Mm -hmm. loved them. So I felt like, okay, I got to include these questions because this is what kids want to know. So that was where the idea of putting the questions came from. And then the answers, yes. So is there any medicine to help? Of course, that's what their first question was. Like, come on, we got to be able to fix this, right? So I, in the book, I um, answered the question, there are some medications that can help with some of the symptoms of these brain diseases, but nothing that will stop them. These medications might calm the person or help them feel better. So we talked about that, that there's symptoms that we could help, but there's nothing that will cure it or stop it from progressing when this book was created. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about, I know there's a lot of confusion about dementia versus Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So that's why the first question explores that, that dementia is a bigger category and then Alzheimer's disease is one of the diseases that are part of the dementia category. And I think the question that I love the most from these children was, what can we do? And they were all, you know, they would all stand up and they were sort of clustering together mm-hmm. in saying, what mm-hmm. can we do? Oh, so sweet. <laughs> and you responded. And <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily as eloquently in this book, but I talk about how You can help a person with dementia by being understanding and patient, helping them when you see they need it, helping others who are caring for that person. So we talked a lot about that, you know, Uh that in this situation, there's the person that has the disease and then there's most likely several caregivers that are part of that process and helping them is really helping the person with the disease. Mm -hmm. And then we thought, I said, but perhaps most importantly, you can help by finding your own way to still connect with them. It's not easy when someone you love has dementia. Some days will be very tough. Other days will be better. But when you spend time with the person in a caring way, they will feel your love, even if they don't show it. And that was another Mm. big thing that my kids had to get used to, is not having, you know, the response, having no response, and just continuing to talk or sing or show or, and not having to have the response. So what are your goals for the book? And obviously, as if you don't know by now, folks listening, (laughs) yours is a positive message. It's a very positive message. Was there ever any doubt that you wanted to end this book on an upper? Actually, that was something we discussed a lot with uh, that I talked a lot with the kids about whether she dies in the end or Mm. not. And the children had different interpretations of what they felt was part of it, but they all felt 
that it was more about at this stage the girl was now taking over as the garden's caregiver and they felt comfortable that the grandmother was being cared for but they were connecting with the young girl so that's why we ended with her taking over mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. As I said, when I talked about the fact that I wanted a story that was relevant for many people that had family members with dementia, my goal is to have this book read by as many people as they can, because it will increase not only the experience of people that are handling dementia firsthand right now, but if children get access to this book, even if they don't currently have a person with dementia in their family, that it will help them understand and be aware of people that have this disease. So spreading awareness, spreading understanding to as many people as possible. I'm currently looking at getting the book translated. I have someone who's going to be doing a translation into German and then French and then Spanish again so that I can just get this book out to help as many people, as many families as possible. I want to see if I can get it into the school systems because I think that it's a great opportunity for teachers to teach this. That was one of the big surprises of this is I've been surprised by teachers that really want the book in their classroom because they think it's relevant no matter what. And having teachers tell me that, that has changed my goal to not just touch people with dementia in their family, but to be able to get into elementary classrooms around the world so that kids all over again can have a better understanding of this disease. And what a great no, idea. Not lofty goals at all. <laughs> no, not lofty. No. <laughs> but what a great idea. I mean, it's a global issue, Alzheimer's. It is. Uh, the, the beauty of our globally connected web and world right now is people send me pictures from of children in Australia reading my book and I have uh, my book in bookstores in the UK and so I the idea of getting it to different places in the world and allowing the uh, book to be translated is the next best step for getting that happening. Catherine, what sort of advice can you give to folks with kids to to help them remember their grandparents when they were healthy? I think it's important for kids, obviously, to remember their grandparents in both stages if they can. Right. You know what? One thing that we did, again, you don't know what's going to really work and what's not going to work. Right. But I made a photo collage with my kids, like old school photos Mm -hmm. (laughs) printed out. And we made a big collage on like a piece of crystal board and we had it by the fridge and it was photos of my mom and dad and mom when she was younger and vibrant and and so it was there every time you went to the fridge every time you went into the kitchen and it was just a reminder and we would talk about the pictures this is when mom liked to sunbathe and read books and this is her and this is she loves cooking and she's making the thanksgiving turkey and so yeah we so we had touch point pictures that was something that we all had. And then as a second step, when she went into the nursing home, I I'd take those photos and put it in a photo album. And so it, I, people might already have albums, but uh, we didn't have an album that was kind of such a summation of my mom's life. So mm-hmm. I did a photo album and I would have like her, you know, she was a swim team coach. So she coached kids and she was a real estate agent and then she ran an inn and I would have like different sections so that the caregivers knew who she was mm-hmm. beyond who they were caring for. And I think those two things, 
they were more they were certainly more for us than for her they were just reminders of who she was so mm-hmm. you know it's still her but it just helps you put it in perspective to remember the person in before the disease mm-hmm. how's your dad holding up how's your dad my dad is doing very well he actually made a connection while my mom was unwell with another person from his past a hmm. university classmate he hmm. found out had early onset dementia and my dad reached out to his wife and they were both going through it with their spouses at the same time and they actually have now married and through that experience together they formed a new relationship How and we're just that? thrilled that dad has love again in his life. How about that? Wow. And I have like a huge new family. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. Well, so so what's next for you and where can listeners learn more about the book? So my next goal is to, like I mentioned, is to get the book into other languages Mm -hmm. and also pursuing ways of getting it into schools Mm -hmm. in my local area in Ontario, I'm hoping that I can actually go from school to school working in partnership with my Alzheimer's Society and do a few presentations to kids. Mm-hmm. I've done one already and um, found it extremely positive from my point of view and from the kids' point of view, and I would love to do more of that. And when I talked to my local Alzheimer's Society, you'll love this, she said that a few years back she was really excited because she had designed this program and she was going to go out to all these elementary schools and she sent out a big invitation, anybody who wants to come, I'll come to your school, I'll talk about Alzheimer's and dementia. And she's like, nobody said yes. So, yeah, so (laughs) she feels that with the book, we can try again Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. see if we can get into classrooms or into schools to talk to kids about this really important topic. Right. It's a useful tool to open the conversation. Exactly. I want to give you the opportunity to say where can listeners learn more about your book. So to find out more about my book, there is a website specifically on the book called weedsinnanasgarden.com. And on that website, it has information on where you can buy the book, but it also has a look inside and a little bit more about the process that I went through and some photos of our families. So that's probably your best bet. The book is available in both a hardcover form directly from the website and also from a soft cover from all online bookstores like Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. It's available there. And it's also available in ebook from major um, online booksellers. Great. Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, one thing I haven't talked about this in the story in the book. Not only does the story follow the progression of the disease, but in the artwork, the progression of the disease is shown by. I created the artwork for the book with multiple images and layering. I did paintings and uh, drawings, and then I did different textural additions to the book using digital editing software and 
as a result of using multi- multimedia to create each of the pieces of art, I actually morphed the artwork and the look of the garden visually as the disease progressed as somewhat of a visual metaphor in addition to the metaphor of the weeds. So there's less color, it's more brown, it's more tangled. And I just think that that was just an- another component to add to the book to kind of portray the disease visually uh, as a means of understanding it. And then as the girl kind of awakens to it and accepts it, then the color and the tangles start to fade away and the blooms and colors start to return. And I think that that's just kind of, you know, the course of the disease is you do go through these really dark and difficult times and then you discover what to do and how to adjust. It's such a constant adjustment, a constant, like, oh, what was working last week isn't working now. Mm-hmm. And just uh, that you keep, you keep entering these zones where you don't know what to do, and then you read or you learn or you hear someone else's story, and then you discover, and then you're in a different stage. And you have to treasure these moments of discovery, and then you're going to have these joyful pieces that come out of it. So, yeah, the waves of in and out, I just wanted to share that the story kind of reflects that on a more <laughs> personal level mm-hmm. and to know that that's okay and if those of you that are dealing with a loved one with dementia you're going to have these moments of such craziness that you don't think you'll ever be able to work through it but you do then you come out and you there's something kind of cool about it and it's been five years since my mom passed and I feel now like this exercise of reaching out to people like there's a lot of people reaching back to me right from that have the book and mm-hmm. it's just so healing to be able to provide support and perspective that I didn't have during the time. Katherine Harrison she's the author and illustrator of Weeds in Nana's Garden. We'll have all kinds of links to Katherine's work on the AgeWise website so be sure to check those out. Katherine Thank you so much for being on the show and really all the best of luck with this wonderful, wonderful book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.